Leaving Las Vegas contains strong opinions and strong language. Listener discretion is advised. Why does a GP need a GP? Not allowed to treat yourself. GMC regulations. So you can't subscribe yourself some drugs. Can't, well, of can't, course you can't, can't prescribe anything. I, I can't. Yeah, you can't be objective. So no, you can't, of course you can't. You can't, you can't, you can't yeah, do yeah, it yeah. for your family members or friends either. So I always have to yeah. ask one really <laughs> stupid fucking question. <laughs> <laughs> Leaving Las Craigus. <laughs> Leaving Las Craigus. <laughs> Cool. Um, thanks. If anyone's listening, thanks for listening and thanks for joining me. I'm going to attempt to put on my professional voice now. Okay. I'm sitting down with my good old friend, Natalie Millett. How long have we known each other? Oh, gosh, it must be about, what, 20-something years? Yeah, it's wild, isn't it? That's mad. We met in... I used to DJ and run heavy metal nightclubs in London and you and your friends and your sister and that used to come down and boogie... Yep. Boogie to pop, pop. We did. Pop punk. We did, yep, absolutely. That's uh, good times. And uh, so the reason I wanted to talk to you is, well, mainly, I knew what you do, and I found that really interesting, but then I read the articles in The Guardian, especially the second one, the, the diary, yeah. really, really hit home, because that's like the mountain that you, that you take on. So do you want to just tell us a little bit about what you do? Okay, so I um, currently am running a specialist homeless GP practice in central London. So it's a GP practice like, like any other, except we only register and see people who are homeless in Westminster. Um, and for homeless, that can be rough sleepers, it can be people in temporary accommodation, emergency accommodation, sofa surfing, squatting, in homeless hostels. Um, anyone who really identifies themselves as being homeless um, will come and register and, um, and we'll see them and um, help them with their health, um, mental health, physical health, and a variety of other social determinants of health as well. Can you tell me what social determinants of health means? So that's the things that contribute to health that are not um, to do with the body. So that will be things like poverty, right. um, housing. Um, uh, like social stresses. So, yeah. Like your flickering yeah. light in your office. Yeah, that's gonna yeah. no, absolutely. You because, you know, it, it's, you can't separate those things out yeah. as much as... Um, uh, the funding for these things are separated out very distinctly. Um, obviously, it's very clear in medicine that that's not something that you can separate out. Um, and especially if you're dealing with homeless health, uh, the social determinants are almost the most important yeah, of factors. So that's what we do. Yeah, so what's... I mean, obviously, living in central London, I've just seen the problem get worse. So you can't avoid... It, yeah. You just cannot ignore it anymore. Yeah. It's tents on, you know, sleeping bags, mattresses. I've seen, I saw a clothes rail yeah, the other day. Yeah. Was, you know, it's just out, it's just got to the worst point that it's been in my 43 years on Earth. Mm. I remember towards the end of Maggie Thatcher before we moved over to Tony, but I try not to get political, but I remember it getting out of hand yeah. in like 1995. Yeah. And then it sort of seemed to get a lot better. And now it's really got out of hand again. What other than having to step over it every single day, the other thing that grasped me was it was a trap that I very nearly fell into mm. two years ago. So I, and I had a I, so I had a very well paid Soho executive mm. job, mm. but it, I had a bully and a narcissist and a liar as a boss, a really cruel man, and then. I had a family trauma that, you know, was really, really too much for me to deal with. Mm. So I quit my job because I literally just couldn't handle both of them. And then just very, very quickly with the cost of living in London, 
um, you just get yourself into a debt trap. I had no credit rating because yeah. I'd been living in France. Yeah. Um, someone ran up a debt on a credit card that they took out in my name. I know who it was. Mm. Uh, and you just very, got, very quickly got into a trap where I couldn't borrow money. I couldn't afford my rent. I got yeah. evicted. Yeah. And, if, and I had to go and live with my brother um, while I tried to find a job. But yeah. then before you can get another flat, you need a deposit. And that's expensive. And yeah. even job hunting is expensive. So it really rung true. To me, so just tell me a little bit about how long have you been doing it? So I started working here in 2011, so about uh, eight years now. Right, and what's your overall observation of the situation in those eight years? It's, I mean, the it's changed a lot. Um, the demand is much higher, so obviously homelessness is much higher. We know that in 2010, I think there was something like 1,700 people rough sleeping um, in. Um, in the UK, and by 2017, that had gone up to over four, four and a half thousand. Jesus. So that's the scope of the problem. Westminster is the borough with the, the greatest number of rough sleepers in uh, the entire of the UK. Right. Um, I think, I think, I can't remember the exact percentages, but it's a, we get a large proportion of that. Um, and what, do, what do you attribute that to? The fact that there's opportunity here, or? Um, I think it's a, it's a variety of things. I think there are lots of services here. Yeah. Um, but I think it's also just the draw of central London. Um, people, especially for migrants, um, you know, it's, it's, it's London as we know it. Mm. Um, and there are transport links, parks. I think the parks yeah. are a big draw. Um, there's... What, because there's a place to be without being bothered, that sort of yeah. thing? Yeah, there's lots of green spaces to, to be during the day, you know, yeah. at, at night if you can get in past yeah. the parks police. Um, so... Yeah, I think I think it's just historically a big draw to mm. London um, for people. So yeah, um, it, you know the, the 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 numbers are rising. The population's changing slightly. When I first started here, um, there weren't so many migrants, and now mm. you know there's a lot of people with no recourse to public funds, um, who really have little access to very very you know not much else in terms of help. Um, and so our proportion of those people is definitely growing. I'd say more than 50% of the people we see are, are people um, who are uh, migrant homeless rather than sort of British. So they're stranded, homes. essentially. Many of them are, are fairly stranded. They can't access um, many of the statutory services um, because they don't have recourse. And it's all tied into what they're um, what they're. And are these for. people who've come like escape from Syria and things like that, or are they EU citizens? Uh, so most, a lot of those are EEA nationals, actually. Um, so the people, if you come here as a refugee, or um, and you have refugee status, or you're a, an asylum seeker with a with a sort of valid asylum claim or an ongoing asylum claim, then you will have uh, access to certain benefits, right. not necessarily all benefits, but some some recourse and some benefit. Um, but um, if you're here um, uh, as an EEA national, you won't necessarily be able to access those. Or if you're here um, illegally, you won't be able to access those. Um, so often international migrants um, who have perhaps overstayed a visa or like that but but EA nationals is probably the majority yeah. of the patients we see who are in that situation it's interesting because you know the the people who are right of center you know say why don't spend money on migrants because we've got our own problems to deal with and our own citizens to deal with and the money should be spent on that and I do sort of understand that argument in a way but then the other side of that argument is if you don't offer the support, it ends up costing more. Absolutely. You yeah, know, it's yeah. more expensive. I remember when I was at the depths of really, 
you know, I was quite mentally ill. I was mm. I was drinking too much and I was not sleeping. I suffer from um, insomnia quite badly. And I got to a point where, you know, I had no money. I had nowhere to go. I didn't, I, I can't go back to my family home because it's not a place that's I'm welcome. And I mm. just thought, you know, I just thought, oh, I'm just going to be one of those guys on the street with an alcohol problem. And then I remember thinking to myself, because the, the criminal background in me, I was like, I'm just going to smash a, smash up a jewellery store and just nick all the shit. Mm. Because if I get all the shit, I'll have money. Yeah. And, that, and I can set myself up with the money. And if I get caught, I'll do six months or eight yeah. months. Yeah. And that'll get me through winter. Yeah. You know, yeah. That was a, yeah. For me, that was a really logical decision. It's like, I'll either, money, I'll either have money or I won't have to worry about it. But then, of course, you've got a criminal record and you're, yeah. you know, and then, then you get fucked into the Yeah, it's a massive slippery slope yeah, at, at that point. But your options are, mm. are terrible yeah. at that point. Yeah. You know, if no, you've got no are. credit rate and you've got no family home mm. and you have a problem with mental health, yeah. your options are terrible. Yeah, and I think for most people we see, um, you know, w one of the biggest issues is a lack of social support. So the people who do end up making that final slide into rough sleeping um, are people who can't, who don't have social support to, to you know, a family to help them out or a circle of friends to help them out. And they're usually estranged from a lot of people. And so social isolation is a, is something big that's not really addressed. It's not yeah. really addressed by homeless services. It's not really addressed by the NHS. It's not really addressed by um, by the government. It's not really addressed by anyone. And, mm. you know, there, there is money now going into um, loneliness in, in, in elderly care and in, you know, in people who are at the end of life. But, but there's this massive group of people who are massively socially isolated and not, mm. um, not, not being, that's not being addressed. And that's something that's very difficult for us to address. But um, I think that's sometimes the, the difference between somebody like you who didn't quite get there yeah. um, and and the people that I see. Yeah. I mean, the only reason I didn't get there is because I have ex an excellent quality circle of friends. Yeah. You know, yeah. I'm just lucky in that regard. If yeah. Without that, I would, I would have had no chance. Yeah. And my brother. My brother was amazing. Mm. So <clears throat> in the change of the demographic and the tripling of numbers that mm. you've seen, what's the quality of the quality of life of, the, of these people? Are they... Is it people who are becoming addicted or have mental health who can't handle real life or something bad happens to them and then they, they're on the street and then they turn to substances to help cope with the reality of the situation. Like, what do you see? Yeah. So uh, most of my patients have experienced trauma. Yeah. Um, the vast majority have experienced trauma. Um, for the migrant population, it's often trauma in adulthood. And for the, for the sort of British-born um, population of homeless people, it's, often, it's usually trauma in childhood. That's really interesting. And we talk about um, these things called ACEs, which is adverse childhood experiences. And for the general population, um, most people will experience somewhere between one and four uh, aces in their childhood. Right. So that might be something like uh, a parent with mental, severe mental illness, a parent with an addiction problem, um, all the different types of abuse, uh, sexual, emotional, physical abuse in childhood. Um, uh, I think p uh, parents going through a divorce yeah. is, is an adverse childhood experience. Uh, there's a massive list of yeah. them. And we know that, you know, most people will experience some of them. Uh, we know that people who have a severe mental illness are likely to have experienced more of those in childhood. So that's, yeah. so that's, that's one sort of risk factor for mental illness. 
And we know in homeless people, the, the average number of ACEs that they experience are at least seven. Right. So we know that people... So you um, can build a picture so you can build, of what You can predict can who may become homeless right. by what they experienced as a child. And that's, you know, it's a very much an evolving kind of um, field of research at the moment. Um, but what that, what that does to us is feel as though by the time we get them, like it's all gone wrong at that yeah. point. Like yeah, it's yeah, almost yeah. yeah they've come to it's you. not that it's too late, yeah. but like the intervention needed to happen way earlier. Yeah. And we're just patching over and sort of picking up the pieces and trying to, you know Yeah, just point them in just a in bandaging a not, in, it and yeah. trying to sort of you know, deal with the fallout of, mm. of, of that. Um so yeah, um trauma. I like to inject a little bit of humour into each one of my podcasts just because I'm me. I don't think calling them ace is <laughs> such, a, such a great no, title. They no, don't really sound... Not, I've, no. I've experienced yeah. probably every one of those that you yeah. just mentioned, so yeah. I feel a little bit less guilty so about you're doing, you're doing not quite being well, able to handle I'm not so sure. But, um, um, but you, there might be people listening to the podcast that are at that pre-stage, mm -hmm. somebody that might hear this and think, I have... I can count up the amount of aces yeah. that I have in my life, yeah. and I see that this might be the direction I'm going. What yeah. could so if somebody catches Preventative themselves, what can, yeah. what can somebody do before they end up um, at that at that point where they're becoming here? That's a really good question. <laughs> I'm not sure I have the answer to that, Colin. Actually, but um, I think I think I think recognizing it is a really good first step, um, and and un understanding why perhaps how that has impacted on you and why that might contribute to the decisions that you make and why thing why it might contribute to how your life has gone so far and why things perhaps haven't gone the way you wanted them to um it because you know these things can affect the way you form relationships they can affect the way you're able to sustain employment uh they can affect um the way that you see the world uh, so you see often we'll see the world as a really hostile place and if your entire sort of outlook is 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 that way then it will change the way you interact with it with with, with other people and and that will have knock-on effects in all aspects of your life and so sometimes just knowing that about yourself and and then you can get psychological support for that um will will can change the you know it's not all doom and gloom you can set off on a different path um, but if you don't realise those things and those things are, are, are buried, maybe you've not ever dealt with it, um, not ever re recognised that those things, especially if they happened in early years, so under the age of five, they're going to have a massive effect on the way your brain developed, literally structurally the way under it develops. Under the age of five, seriously? Yeah, yeah. So that's when a lot of the moulding happens and a lot of the sort of brain development happens. So it's when some of the biggest effects can be. Wow, that yeah. is phenomenal. I always yeah. thought that... Like, because you don't have any memories before you're about four mm. that you, you know, conscious memories that you can tap into. I always thought that, like, God had designed, you know, whatever, the grand design mm. had designed us to give you, like, four years of, yeah. of like, no. getting away with yeah, it no, all. it's absolutely not like that. It's, it's quite the opposite because life is really simple for a baby. Yeah. Uh, you know, a, a baby's like, okay, I cry for, fee for, for, for a feed, I get my needs met. And there's this one person or two people or, you know, whatever setup is at that home who are there to meet my needs. And if those needs aren't met, then immediately things start to happen in the brain going, you know, my needs are not important. 
Oh my you know, God. and it, that's the beginning of, 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 of somebody setting up with that mindset for life, potentially. So wow. That, yeah. So we, oh, wow, that has just blown my mind. I really, I really thought you got a pass for several years yeah, no. and then it's, oh my God. No, not at that all. Is, that not explains all. quite a lot. With the kinds of people that you're treating, what kind of recovery rate do you do you get people like is it is it pretty bad that's a that's a really really difficult question because what's recovery right you know Not like so what, getting, what getting a job and a flat i uh, you see i probably don't see that because we're very much a sort of crisis intervention service so we see people when they're at their absolute lowest right. lowest point and so we'll probably by the time they move on to perhaps some sort of temporary accommodation or something they would probably register elsewhere and so we don't really right. see the eventual outcome so and so what effect does that have you on, on you personally do you try and keep your separation or? Uh, I, yes I mean you have to you have yeah. to you have to you can't you can't take take it all home with you uh, you know I'm, I'm pretty good at once I leave the door and walk out the building um I can leave it here I do, there are some, some patients that will always always stick in your mind and mm. some people that will wake me up at night um, and some people that I have to go home and sort of have a glass of wine mm. and, you know, anonymously talk to my yeah. husband about and go, oh my gosh, I don't know how, you know, and sort of get it out of my system. But I have a really good team working here and we talk to each other a lot and we share the load and share the, 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 the burden and... There's a lot of vicarious traumatization. Often patients will come here and they part, part of the therapeutic relationship that we have with people is that they will offload yeah. their trauma onto us and we have to be able to, to, to yeah, hold it for burden. them. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you have to be quite resilient yourself to be able to do that. And, and it's all fine until something goes shit in your life you know that yeah. you're carrying yeah. and then then it becomes harder because you've got not got the same emotional space to, to carry that for them. But but yeah, it's it, it's manageable. But I think com communication, just talking about it. Um, yeah, I mean is, that's you, th that has really got me through. It's kind of why I started this because mm. I can talk to people who yeah. I find impressive, learn shit. You know, like I've learned stuff here today, and and that just helps me process everything that I'm going through. And that mm. segues nicely into that Guardian article. So the first one was about the clinic. Yeah. So we had so um, so Sarah Johnson from the Guardian had. Um, um, I'd seen an advert for her uh, that, that she'd put out about um, about NHS articles that, that, that she was doing a long many years ago, and I wrote a kind of um, kind of like quite tabloidy puff piece about about working as a junior doctor and some things that had gone wrong. So I had her contact details, and she put out another thing recently about this working week um, uh, a series of articles that she was doing, um, and I said, "Hey, I have quite an interesting working week. Would you be interested?" And she said, "Yes," and I. I wrote it and then at the end of sub, sort of submitting it to her I said I sort of said offhand if you ever want to come down and see the clinic see what we do you know let me know and then she sort of said actually I would at which point I went oh god I don't know if we're allowed journalists <laughs> here and oh god what are the medical legal implications of having a journalist in the building and anyway it was fine we worked it all out um, and she came and shadowed us for the day and it was from that that she wrote the articles about um, about the clinic and about um, uh, particularly they wanted to focus on the hostile environment and the migrant charging was quite a big theme that she'd seen throughout the day, which um, which was about uh, the, the, the changes to hospitals charged, uh, secondary care, so hospitals charging uh, migrants, um, uh, particular um, migrants for 
uh, for secondary care in the hospitals. So she, they sort of wanted to focus on that. But the first article was, was so the one that got published last was the one that I'd written initially for yeah, her. Yeah, right, that makes right. Sense. Okay. So Long-winded long story. Yeah, I thought she'd probably come down, seen the place and, you know, been attracted to no, what you No, it was do the other way around. It was, I, I quite like a bit of writing. Um, and, um, and so it, it sort of... Uh, quite therapeutic for me. Because I, I, I thought you, were, I thought it was natural. It re, you know, yeah. the, the journey that I went through, and, mm. and and we'll try to link to the article in the podcast somehow. <laughs> um, was you know a journey of your week and the the, the yeah. toll it takes yeah. and and what you try to bring home and what you try not to bring yeah. home and trying to be a mother and a wife and you know <laughs> and all of this sort of stuff it just yeah. it read you know it, it read like like a writer had written it and yeah. not a doctor it really took well, me on a journey <laughs> and I was like oh that cheeky um yeah so people really should read that because I, we I don't I don't think we know what people on the front line of the services have to deal with. And I think it's it was a really succinct piece that just sort of made you go, holy shit, actually, yeah, that is that is really taking on a lot. So I just wanted to say I thought that was amazing. Oh, thank you. Can I just ask a bit more about when people end up at the clinic, what yeah. sort of services that the clinic Yeah, yeah, from? no, absolutely. So we try and do what sort of a one-stop shop. So we know that for homeless people... Um, uh, institutions and massive barriers generally um you know appointments just the appointment system that is operated throughout the nhs is is, is really difficult for homeless people it's getting better now that a lot of them will have what, a phone because they or don't a have access phone. to online or because they're intimidated um or? because they don't have a nine to five monday to friday working week it's not they don't have a routine like that they they have their own routines which might involve certain soup runs or day centres or, you know, going to get their benefits or whatever. Yeah. But it's but it's not it it's not the same as what what you and I have. And so well, what you um, have, I'm, what I'm fucking yeah. crazy. <laughs> no, that's true. That's true. You, you are up all night, aren't you? Yeah. Um, so appointments are for people who have schedules. Do you know what I yeah, mean? Like course. people who go who of have course. a diary, who know what day of the week it is, yeah. who who know that it's Tuesday and it's you know, yeah. whatever, February or whatever. So, um, so, so appointment systems don't work very well. Um, waiting around doesn't work very well for, for many people who are homeless. They, they don't, they're not necessarily able to wait for various different reasons. Um, we know a lot of people who are homeless have brain injuries or mental illness that make um, that kind of scenario very difficult, being in a fairly enclosed space with a lot of people waiting for something that they're slightly anxious about. Yeah. Um, it's hard enough for, for, for most people, yeah. let, let alone if you've got all these other layers of complexity going on. So we try and have uh, bring as much in-house as possible. So we so there's a there's a one GP here uh, um, all the time. Uh, there's a nurse. Uh, we have very experienced nurses who can prescribe as well. Um, and we have a counsellor three times a week. We have a psychiatrist once a week. We have a dentist. We have a, a podiatrist, which is like a foot specialist. We have. Um, a uh, alcohol clinic once a week. Uh, oh, we have a hepatitis C clinic once a month. Uh, we have a, a particular named link with HIV services and the sexual health clinic down the road who will drop everything and come and see one of our patients because they know that they're not getting them into their clinic. Um, we have links with TB services. Um, and so if you can come in, you can register on the spot. We um, don't ask for ID or, um, or proof of address, obviously. <laughs> um, we do, you know, we do have a registration form, but we help them fill it out. Um, and, and they come in and they will have a new patient um, sort of needs assessment done with a nurse who will check 
everything from um, their, their health to their, their physical health to their mental health, but also, you know, where are you sleeping? Um, do you go to any day centres? Do you have any support for your housing? Are you on any benefits? Um, and, then, and then they might see me for any health problems and then they might see, oh, we've got a housing and benefits advisor as well at the moment. Um, and um, so they might see um, uh, him to get a, a benefits claim up and running and then they might drop in and see the counsellor and then they'll come back the next day to have their feet checked. And we try yeah. and do everything as much as we can here um, so that we can build up that relationship. And once they feel safe uh, and, and happy coming here, we try and do as much as possible here. It's better care than us working folk get. <laughs> do you know what it is? It is, it is good. Um, obviously, being a walking clinic, that means if you're 10th in the queue, you're going to have to sit and wait yeah, two of hours. Course, of course, yeah, So yeah, there's, yeah. you know, there, there, there are um, uh, cons to yeah. it as well. Um, and it also means that when somebody does get housed, they can find it really difficult moving to a mainstream general practice where, I mean, I can't get an appointment at my GP practice, you know, let alone if you're used to this sort of walk-in service. So there's another thing I wanted to ask yeah. when you were talking about, um, as Craig was saying, about, uh, you know, success stories. And so I understand that when people are moved, people are moved on, they moved mm -hmm. on to another section of the service, the next, next part. When when are you satisfied, or what yeah. does it take for you to be satisfied that, that somebody that has been helped? Sort of ready to move on. So, I mean, in terms of our contract, so we're contracted by um, by, by the NHS, um, and, our, and our contract is that um, really, if somebody is housed, um, then then they need to move to a to a mainstream general practice. Um, and part of our contract is to help upskill mainstream GPs to be able to better support homeless people. So so we do a lot of education and teaching around around homeless health and things. Um, if somebody is asleep, rough sleeping still, but they're not in Westminster anymore, unfortunately, we do have to move them on. But we will signpost them to another homeless service if, if there is one. But yeah, what would I call somebody who sort of on the right path, um, having yeah, having a roof over their head that is stable enough that they're not going to have to move every few months, or you know they, they've not got this sort of eviction hanging mm. over them the entire time, um, and able to, you know, if they want to work and they're 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 well enough to work, so a, able to do some sort of work, um, you know, would be would be good because then they can be independently driving their life, if you know what I mean. Um, and for some patients, that's not going to happen. Uh, but but for many, that is, you know, they can get out of it and they can, you know, get back to some sort of, um, I don't want to use the word normal, but yeah, normal yeah, life yeah, in yeah. inverted commas. Yeah. 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 What percentage of just out of my own interest? So I, I did a NHS clinical trial. Oh, did you? Yeah. yeah. I, it's changed my life. It yeah. was such a success and it was... CBT, cognitive yeah. behavioural therapy, yeah. with ketamine. Oh yeah. Uh, okay. Or you might get a placebo. Yeah, yeah. Who knows? But yeah. I'm pretty damn sure I got the ketamine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, and it was to treat addiction because yeah. I was using yeah. alcohol to escape from reality. Yeah. And I don't drink now. And it, like it really, really yeah. showed me mm. that all of my bad behavioural patterns yeah. are defined by yeah. my relationship with alcohol going yeah. all the way back to when my father you know when you first met me I was straight edge mm. and I didn't do anything yeah. that was my relationship with alcohol yeah, because yeah. of my relationship yeah. with I've had a relationship with alcohol mm. my entire life and mm. and it's been a bastard to conquer but this yeah. NHS clinical trial really really helped me see the way I'm not never say that I'm cured of alcoholism because yeah. you're never cured of yeah. alcoholism but I haven't drunk in five months 
What percentage of the people you treat have an addiction problem? You know, I, I don't, I don't actually know that statistic of like, like, without knowing. But I, I, I would say at, at least fifty percent. Right. I would say, and I'd say alcohol much more than yeah. than than substances. Um, uh, off sometimes both, but alcohol. Right. Is, yeah. That's actually lower than yeah. I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to. I be... think some of that will be. It might be higher. Right. Yeah. Um, but but some it's of that, still not like boom. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. No, it's not 100%. If you look at the most chaotic people, if you look at the people who've been in homeless the longest, it, it that, yeah. those numbers will change dramatically. Yeah. If you look at the people who are always in A and E, that's mental health, drugs, and alcohol, yeah. with, without a doubt. Yeah. Um, and if you look at the people who have more than two or three years of homelessness, mm. alcohol will mm. be in there, um, or, or, or drugs, but alcohol certainly. I think, I, think, I think, unfortunately, once you get diagnosed with an addiction problem, it sort of overshadows your mental health yeah. problem, and it yeah. becomes the main problem. And, you know, and heart, you, know you see that with, with, with services as well. Mental health services won't really deal with you unless you've treated your addiction problem first. But actually, the reason you've got an addiction problem is probably because you've got a mental health Absolutely. problem. And so you really can't separate the two. And there are dual diagnosis clinics, which will look at both of them together. But they're run by the addiction services, usually not by the mental health teams. And and so um, and, there, you know, there is many health professionals out there who don't see addiction problems as part of the spectrum of mental health right. they'll see it as like something someone's chosen to do to do yeah. you know like it's a lifestyle choice yeah. which if you work with people with addictions you know that's absolutely and if if you've had addictions it's bullshit. Yeah. yeah it's not it's you know that it's self-medication for something yeah. else yeah, yeah yeah the other thing was do you have do you have people that you treat who are like educated professionals who's struggled with the fact that we live in a society now where there isn't much support when things go wrong. People who've like made, been made redundant or had a yeah, death in the family. Not, or... It's not the majority of the people we yeah, see, in all honesty. And this, I, you know, this sort of, I know the big sort of homeless charities often talk about we are one, you know, everyone's one paycheck away from homelessness. And, 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 and I think that, I, th I think the people that, I think because most of the people I see are rough sleepers or people really, really struggling with very poor accommodation options, yeah. um, I think, I think I'm not seeing those people. Yeah. I, I'm not saying they don't exist, but I'm, I'm not seeing them here. Yeah, yeah. I think they either will tend to stay registered with the mainstream surgery or they tend not to kind of be involved in the homeless community. Um, but we do get some people who are, you know, have had, you know, clear, a clear trajectory of, of, of a very stable life. Mm. And then oft, sometimes you see this sort of point where something happened and perhaps they don't know what's happened, but <coughs> now they are... They, their relationship has broken up and their jobs, you know, broken down. And, and, and often the thing that's happened is some sort of mental health event. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the people that we see who are, you know, perhaps more educated and did have, you know, a, a family and a job and all of these things, it's, it's usually a mental health problem yeah. that, that results in, in homelessness. Yeah, um, I was working with this charity uh, called Yazda that deal with uh, Yazidi refugees who mm. had to run away from northern Iraq because ISIS were persecuting them. Mm. And there, you know, there are all these refugees who've settled in Europe who are very smart and very empathetic and were living perfectly good lives yeah. who just cannot get on their feet yeah. because it's just too much to yeah. deal with, losing yeah. everything, relocating. You know, it's it's just way, way, way too much. Yeah, yeah. I suppose I suppose of sort of some of our migrant populations. I I, I had this this lady who, 
um, was uh, from Eritrea, so had fled Eritrea, um, was uh, a refugee here, and she was working as a hairdresser, um, sort of for her friends really, and was just getting a little bit of money doing doing sort of hairdressing. And she was homeless, she wasn't on the street, she was sofa surfing with friends. Um, uh, certain communities are very mm. good about supporting each other. Um, and churches as well, there's a lot of sort of, of faith involved in, in homeless right. services as well. Um, and, and I got talking to her about something and she just dropped into the conversation that she used to be an accountant mm. back home and that she had um, used to go on business trips to Hong Kong and wear suits and all of this. And, and, and I just, I, you know, sometimes you, you're Your so used to the people that you see day in, day out. And, you know, I, I just had never thought to ask. Mm. And, and that was a real stark reminder, even for me, having done this for eight years, to remember who the person was before yeah. the homelessness. Um, and because, you know, these are just humans. They're just human beings who have uh, like something shit has happened and they're in this situation. And, and, and actually, it, it's much more respectful to, to, to talk to them and ask them about what their life was yeah. like before because that's the person they are yeah the person they are now is is a con is, is is a consequence of everything that's happened it doesn't define them no absolutely. and it shouldn't define them and i think as i think homeless services we often because we're dealing with all that chaos we forget about what's behind it all and so it, it was a good reminder for me to to do that wow absolutely natalie thank you for talking to us it's i no think problems. you're amazing Thank you for coming. Keep doing it. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Um, I think I think that's it. Leaving Las Vegas starred Craig Tuey and Colin Wallace, and was produced by Craig Tuey and Colin Wallace. Audio post production and sound design by Sam Matt Dempsey. <laughs> <laughs>